Well, for me, this is really a special uh, conversation with a friend, uh, Professor Fyodor Ernov, uh, someone who I had a chance to work with for several years, uh, genome editing induced pluripotent stem cells in a joint project. Well, he was the chief scientific officer at Sangamo Therapeutics, one of the pioneering genome editing companies. Before uh, I get into it, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, it was Fyodor who coined the word genome editing, if you didn't know that. And he is uh, just extraordinary, uh, the first to, with his team to uh, do zinc finger nucleases, which we'll talk about uh, editing human cells. And uh, his background is he grew up in Moscow. I guess uh, his father gave him uh, James Watson's book at age 12, and he somehow made a career into the gene and human genomics and uh, came, got his PhD at Brown and now is a professor at UC Berkeley. So welcome, Theodore. What an absolute treat to be here and speak with you, Eric. Well, we're going to get into this topic on a day or a week that's been yet another jump forward, you know, with the um, the chickens that were made uh-huh. with genome editing, at least partially resistant to avian flu. That was yesterday. Today, it's about getting uh, pig kidneys genome edited so they don't need uh, immunosuppression to be transplanted into monkeys for two and plus two plus years successfully. And this is just never ending, uh, extraordinary stuff. And obviously our uh, listening uh, and readership, our viewership is including people who don't know anything about this topic, right? Uh, because it's hard to follow. There's several categories of ways to genome edit. The nucleases, which you uh, have pioneered, the um, base and the prime editing. So maybe we could start with um, these different types of editing that have kind of evolved over time and how you see the differences between what you really worked in the zinc finger talons, uh, zinc finger nucleases and talons and Cas9, as opposed to the more recent uh, base and prime editing. Yeah, I think a, a good analogy would be with transportation. You know, the internal combustion engine was, I guess, invented in the somewhat like the 1860s, 1870s. But the first Ford Model T, a, a production car that, you know, average people could buy and drive was quite a bit later. And as you look fast forward to, you know, the 2020s, we have so many ways in which that internal combustion engine have been put to use, right? How many different kinds of four-wheeled vehicles there are and how many... Other things move on, on on sea, in the air. There are other flavors of engines. You don't even need internal combustion anymore. But this fundamental idea that we are propelled forward, not by animal power or our you know leg power, but by a mechanical device we engineered for that, blossomed from its first reductions to practice in the late 19th century to the world we live in today. The, the, the dream of changing human DNA on demand is actually quite an old one. We've wanted to change DNA for some time, um, and largely to treat uh, inborn errors of ourselves. And by that, I mean things like cystic fibrosis, which destroys the ability of your lungs and pancreas to function normally, or hemophilia, which prevents your blood from clotting, or sickle cell disease, which causes excruciating pain by messing with your red blood cells. Or Eric's, of course, you know, in your court, you've written the definitive textbook on this, 
folks uh, suffer tremendously sometimes from the fact that their heart doesn't beat properly, again, because of typos in DNA. So gene editing was named because the dream was we'd get word processor-like control over our genes. So just like, you know, my dad, who was, a, as you allude to, a professor of literature, would sit in front of his computer and click with his mouse on a, on a, on a sentence he didn't like, he'd just get rid of it. We named gene editing because we dreamt of a technology that would ultimately allow us that level of control about over, over our sequence. And I, I want to protect your, your audience from the alphabet soup uh, of the CRISPR field. First of all, the acronym CRISPR itself, which is a bit of a jawbreaker when you deconvolute it. <laughs> and then, of course, the you know, clustered regular interspace short palindromic repeats doesn't really teach any, anything, anyone unless you're a professional in this space. And also, of course, the, the, the larger constellation of the tools uh, that the gene editor has, base editing, prime editing, this and that. Um, and I just want to say one key thing. Um, the training wheels have come off of the vision of CRISPR gene editing as a way to change DNA for the good. You know, you alluded to an animal that has been CRISPRed to no longer spread devastating disease. And that's just a fundamental new way for us to think about how we fight that disease. The list of people who are waiting for an organ transplant is enormous and growing. And now we have both human beings and primates who live uh, with organs that were made from gene-edited pigs. Again, if, if you and I were having this conversation 20 years ago, you know, will there be an organ from a gene-edited pig put into a human or a monkey would say, you know, not tomorrow. But the thing I want to really highlight and, and go back to uh, the fact that you, Eric, really deserve a lot of credit as a, as a visionary in the field of gene editing. I will never forget when we collaborated before CRISPR came on, on board, before Jennifer Doudna's and Emmanuel Charpentier's magnificent discovery of CRISPR-Cat9, we were using older gene editing technology and our collaboration, of course, was in the area of your um, expertise in the unique depth, which is cardiovascular disease. And uh, we were able to use these relatively simple tools to change uh, DNA at genes that make us susceptible to heart disease. And you said to me, I will never forget this, Theodore, what I want to do is I want to cut heart disease out of my genome. <laughs> and you know what that's happened? That is happening clinically. Here we are in 2023, and there's a by a technology company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they are literally using CRISPR to cut out heart disease from the DNA of uh, living individuals. So here we are in a, in a short 15 years, um, we've come to a point where enough of the technology components have matured where we can seriously speak about the realization of what you said to me in 2009, cutting heart disease out of DNA of living beings. Amazing, amazing trajectory of progress from relatively humble beginnings in a remarkable speed, a remarkably short interval of time. Well, it's funny. I didn't even remember that, Theodore. You really brought it back. Um, and the fact that we were working with the tools that are, you know, really, as you say, kind of the early uh, automobiles that, um, you know, moved uh, so far uh, forward. But they worked. I mean, zinc finger nucleases and talons, the precursors to the Cas9 editors worked. They maybe not had as high a yield, um, but they did the job. And that's how we were able to cut out the, the 9P21 out of the, um, the cells that we worked on uh, together, um, the uh, stem cells. Now, um, 
there's been over a couple hundred patients who've been treated mm-hmm. with Cas9 now, um, and it makes uh, it cuts double-stranded DNA. Uh, so it, it disrupts, but it gets the job done for many conditions. That's right. Um, what What would you say? If, uh, you You keep up with this field um, as well as anyone, obviously. What diseases appear to have conditions to have had the the most c- compelling impact to date? So. The, I really love the way you frame this, Eric, by pointing out the fact that the, the kind of editing that is in the clinic today is actually um, relatively straightforward conceptually, which is you, you take this remarkable molecular machine that came out of bacteria, actually, and you re-engineer it again. Congratulations, and thank you, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel for giving us a tool of such power. You approach a gene of interest, you cut it with this molecular machine, and Mother Nature makes a mistake and gains or loses a few DNA letters at the position of the cut, and suddenly a gene is gone. Okay, well, why would you want to get rid of a gene? Uh, the, the best example I can offer is if the, if the gene is, produces something that is toxic. And uh, the biotechnology company Intelia has used uh, a technology that's familiar to all of your audience, which is lipid nanoparticles. And we all know about lipid nanoparticles because they are, of course, the basis of uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for SARS-CoV-2. This is a pleasant opportunity for me to thank you on the record for being such a voice of reason uh, in in the challenging times that we experienced during the pandemic. Uh, But believe it or not, the way Intelli is putting CRISPR into people is using those very same lipid nanoparticles, which is amazing to think about because we know that vaccines can be made for hundreds of millions of people. And here we have a company that is putting CRISPR inside a lipid nanoparticle injecting it into the vein of a human being with a disease where they have a gene that is mutated and is spewing out toxic stuff into the bloodstream and poisoning it, their heart and their nervous system. And you know, I, I, it sounds science fictional, except it's science real. About three weeks after that injection, 90% of that toxic protein is gone from the bloodstream. And for people to appreciate the number 90%, you know, the human liver is not a small organ. It's about, you know, more than one liter in size. And the fact that you can inject a teaspoon of CRISPR into somebody's vein and three weeks later, 90% of that thing has had a toxic gene removed is kind of remarkable. So to answer your question directly, to me, uh, the genetic engineering of the liver is an incredibly exciting development in our field. And while Intelia is pursuing a disease, actually several that most of your audience will not have heard of, they're degenerative conditions or or conditions where people, people's inflammatory response doesn't quite work. And let's be fair, they are, they're relatively rare. They you know, maybe affect tens of thousands at most people on planet Earth. So we're not talking about you know, diseases that kill hundreds of millions. Um, Verve, uh, another biotechnology company, has in fact used that exact same approach. So sticking inside the vein of somebody um, with an enormous cardiovascular disease risk. Again, I, I, I really want to be careful to not stay in my lane here when speaking with the, with the physician scientists who wrote the textbook on this. So these are folks with devastatingly high cholesterol. And, you know, if you don't treat them, they really suffer tr- tremendously. And this biotech, you know, injected some CRISPR into the bloodstream of these people um, and get, got rid of a gene that we hope will normalize their cholesterol. Well, that's, that's amazing. Sign me up for that one. So that's as far as editing the liver. It's, it's here now. And I'm very excited for how these early trials are going to go. Editing the blood 
has moved uh, also quite fast. I, you know, before I tell you uh, where the excitement lies, I need to disclose that I'm actually a paid consultant to Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which is the company that did the work I'm about to describe. But consultant or not, I am excited, frankly, speechless at the fact that they've been able to take blood stem cells from a number of human beings with a devastating condition called sickle cell disease and a related condition called thalassemia and the common feature there is that these folks can't make red blood cells, so they need transfusions, they need treatment for pain, the list goes on and on. And for a good number of these folks, uh, CRISPR gene editing their blood stem cells and putting them back in has, as best as we can tell, uh, resolved their major disease symptoms. They don't need transfusions, they don't experience pain. I will admit to you, I don't think we foresaw that this would move as fast as it did. I honestly imagine that we would, it would be years before I would talk about 20 gene-edited people, much less 50. And as you point out, there are several hundred. Last on this list, but not least, uh, you know, if, 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 you're, if anyone in your audience uh, wants, a, uh, wants a good cry for a feel-good moment rather than a feel-bad moment, they should look up the story of a girl named Alyssa, L-A-L-Y-S-S-A, -S -S and the other term in Google search would be base editing, B-A-S-E editing. And you will hear this delightful story of a child who was dying, a devastating death of childhood leukemia, and physicians and scientists in London used gene editing to help her own immune system attack the cancer, and she's now alive and well and beaming from the pages of newspapers. I bring this up because I think that, uh, you know, we have many weapons in our fight against cancer. But this idea that you can engineer a person's own immune system to take on um, an incurable cancer, especially in the pediatric population, is, you know, stand on your desk and cheer kind of news. Although, of course, you know, it's early days and I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So to answer your question in a nutshell, I think genetic engineering of the liver for degenerative diseases and heart disease, very promising. Genetic engineering of the blood for conditions like sickle cell disease, very exciting. And genetic engineering of the immune system to treat cancer, amazing avenues that are realistic, that are in the clinic today. And, you know, your audience should expect better, we hope, better and better news from this as time goes on. Yeah, you covered uh, the main uh, parts of the body that can be approached with um, genome editing, like the liver and the blood. And of course, the blood, there's taking the blood cells out, like in that young girl with leukemia, no less to, um, to work on blood diseases, as you mentioned. But there's also the eye, I guess, where you can actually do genome editing of diseases of the eye. Admittedly, like you said, they're they're rare, but there there's some early trials that look encouraging. My question is, are we going to be limited to only these three tissues of the body, blood, liver, and eye? Or do you foresee that we're going to be able to approach more than that? So I think this is, um, you know, predictions are a, a challenging topic. <laughs> um, but I think for this one, I am prepared to put my name on the line. <laughs> the one part of the human body that I think we're going to have a very hard time bringing into the welcoming halo of CRISPR is the kidney. Mm. Just that, that the anatomy and physiology of the way our kidneys work make them re a really hard fortress. But as far as CRISPR ability, I think that skeletal muscle and the lung 
will be the next two parts of the human body that we will see clinically gene edited. And as you point out, sensory systems, so the eye, the ear, um, are already um, inside the realm of CRISPR. And um, I think that specific structures in the spine, and you'll say to the audience, why would you want to gene edit the spine? Well, you know, there is no way to say it except to say it, but, you know, I think something like 70,000 of our fellow Americans succumbed to um, fentanyl overdoses this past year. And uh, there is, in fact, a way to prevent devastating pain that does not involve fentanyl. It involves CRISPR. And the idea would be that you put CRISPR into the spine to prevent uh, the neurons in the spine from transmitting the pain signal. We know what gene to use. We know what gene to go after. And so I think the lung, the muscle, and the spine will be the next three organ systems for which we will see very serious CRISPR editing clinically in the next just few years. Um, you will notice I did not mention the brain. Mm. You know, uh, I always, uh, when I speak with my students here, I, I use an example that they can relate to, which is the Australian actor Chris Hemsworth. This, you know, amazing human being. He plays superheroes or demigods or something or other. So all of my students here at Cal know who he is. And he recently told the world, brave man, that he, you know, he has the, the uh, huge genetic risk for Alzheimer's. And he's in his late 30s. So, okay. So he has maybe 20 to 25 years before Alzheimer's hits. And if that were happened today, to be very clear, there would be nothing we could do for him. So the question for all of us in the community is, well, we have 20 years to, you know, save Chris Hemsworth and, you know, millions of others like him. Are we going to get there? I think incrementally we will. You know, um, it's, it's lipid nanoparticle technology for which, you know, Ka uh, Katie Carrico and Drew Weissman in Modified Bases just won, um, the, you know, the Nobel Prize. That's relatively recent stuff, right? I mean, we did not, the world did not have lipid nanoparticle messenger RNA technology until, you know, a, de a decade plus ago. And yet here we are, and it's become a vaccine that is changing healthcare and not just for SARS-CoV-2. Um, so what I'm really looking forward to is the following. The beautiful thing about Jennifer and Emmanuel's discovery of CRISPR is gene editing is now accessible to pretty much anyone in biomedical sciences who wants to work with it. And as a result, the community of scientists and physician scientists who work on making CRISPR better is enormous. Nobody can keep up with the literature. Whereas back in the day, again, sorry to sound like the, the, the four Yorkshiremen said from Monty Python, oh, back in the day, we didn't have to. <laughs> you know, the, the community of people getting making editing better back in the 2000s was really small. Today, you know, name a problem. You know, there are 50 labs working on it. And I think the problem you allude to, which is an important one, which is what's preventing CRISPR from becoming the uh, panacea? Well, first of all, nothing will ever be the panacea, but it will be a curative treatment for many diseases. I think the challenge of getting CRISPR to more and more of the human body, um, I think ultimately will be solved. Eric, I do want to, you know, just not to belabor the point, really uh, highlight to your audience that you and I are really discussing editing of the body of existing human beings with existing diseases. And that, you know, whatever, um, I believe, you know, frankly, crimes against science and medicine may have been perpetrated by certain people in terms of trying to engineer embryos to make designer babies, I think is just beyond the pale of medical ethics. Right. And that's not what you and I are talking about. No, right? no, we're not going to talk about 
the fellow who wound up in prison in China uh, was recently released, and uh, we we can um, only learn from that how uh, reckless uh, you know use of science uh, is totally unethical, unacceptable. But I'm glad you mentioned. I was going to bring that up in our conversation now. The other thing that I think is notable, you already touched on, there's some 7,000 of these monogenic diseases, uh, but there's over, just with those, there's over 100 million people around the world who have any one of those diseases. Now, you already mentioned, for example, other ways that um, these can be used uh, of genome editing, such as people at high risk for heart disease, familial hypercholesterolemia, not just the people that have that that gene or a few genes that cause that FH, but also in people that are very high risk for heart disease and never have to take a pill for their throughout their life or injections. And so there is yet another one to add on to the people with intractable pain. Uh, so I mean, we're talking about something that ultimately could have applicability in hundreds of millions, billions of people in the years ahead. Uh, so this is not something to take lightly. It will take time to have compelling evidence. And that gets me to off-target effects. Oh, yes. Because as uh, this is a field has evolved from the Model T forward, um, there's also been um, better specificity of That's getting right. to the target and not uh, doing things elsewhere in the genome. Um, can you comment about where do we stand with these off-target effects? So I had the honor of working with a physician who was instrumental in advancing the very first cancer immunotherapy, ipilimumab, which is a biologic for to treat devastating cancer melanoma through the clinic. And early in the clinical trials, they discovered a toxicity of that thing. And patients started to die, not of their cancer, but of that toxicity. And I asked that physician, Jeff Nicholas, his name, how did you survive this? He said, well, you wake up every morning with a stone in your stomach. And guess what? Um, uh, a, a medicine in that class, you know, here we are well over a decade later, a medicine in that class, Keytruda, is not just one of the best-selling drugs um, in, in, the, in the history, but is also enormously impactful in the field of cancer. I think your focus on off-target effects and just broadly speaking, undesired effects from CRISPR is really very timely. And I would argue probably the single most important focus that we can place on our field, uh, second only to making sure that these treatments are broadly and equitably available. CRISPR was discovered to be a gene editing tool by Jennifer Doudna here on the UC Berkeley campus 11 years ago. That's nothing. In terms of like the history of medicine, you know, it's nothing. It's a baby. Um, and so uh, for that reason, um, all of us are enormously mindful. Every single human being that gets CRISPR is, a, is, a, is a, an, an experiment, you know, by definition. And it, nobody wants to experiment on humans except unless there is, that's exactly the right thing to do. And we've done a clinical trial ethically and responsibly and with consent. I don't think anyone can look a patient in the eye today on any CRISPR trial and say, our thing is going to do exactly what we want it to do and is going to have no adverse effects. Um, 
we're doing all we can to understand where these potential off-target sites are and are they dangerous? And certainly, you know, the Food and Drug Administration and the regulators outside of the U.S. where these trials are happening are watching this like a hawk. You know, I, I've, I've seen uh, regulatory documentation where hundreds of pages are devoted to that issue. But, you know, the honest-to-goodness truth is I don't think gene editing is ready to treat anything but severe disease. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about preventing a chronic condition that might emerge 10 years from now, I do not think now is the time to do anything CRISPR-wise about that. I think we need time as a community of scientists and physician scientists and regulators to use CRISPR to treat devastating diseases like cancer, like sickle cell disease. You know, an American who has sickle cell disease has an average lifespan of 40 to 45. That's just, I mean, there is obviously structural inequities in healthcare, but but that's just a terrible number. So, you know, we we owe it to these folks to try to do something. Or, you know, let's see what we're talking about, CRISPR, for these degenerative diseases. These people lose the ability to walk mm-hmm. over time inexorably. So that's where we step in with CRISPR to say, hi, w- would you like to be a, a clinical, a, a, an individual on a clinical trial where we, we got to be honest with you, we, where there are risks that we can't fully mitigate? Ultimately, the hope is this. As we learn more and more about how these uh, gene editing medicines, experimental medicines, behave in early stage clinical trials, what will happen in parallel is more and more safety technologies. You know, um, I don't remember a world, I was born in 1968, and I don't remember a world, uh, uh, you know, frankly, without uh, seatbelts in cars. Mm -hmm. But I'm told that that was not always the case. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that's just, so what I'm saying is as we learn more and more about the safety issues that they will emerge, to be very clear, I want to be a realist. I don't want to be Debbie Downer. I want to be Debbie Realist. As we learn about potential safety signatures that emerge with the use of gene editing, we're going to have to put in place, metaphorically speaking, seatbelts to protect future cohorts of patients potentially on more chronic diseases, exactly as you allude to. In order to impact millions of people with CRISPR, we have to solve the issues of health justice. How do we make these more affordable? And we have to learn more about how to make them safer so as to make them more amenable to be put to use in larger patient populations. Oh, that's so well put. And I think uh, the idea of going for the most uh, difficult, debilitating, uh, serious conditions where the benefit to risk ratio is much more acceptable to learn from that uh, to before we get to using this for hearing loss instead of hearing aids and all the other things that we've been talking about. Now, you wrote a a very important piece in the New York Times. We can cure disease by editing a person's DNA. Why aren't we? And Hmm. can you tell us about that? What what motivated you to write that New York Times op-ed and what was the main thrust of it? Um, letters from families of people with genetic diseases. Everyone who works in this space, Eric, and I'm sure you're no exception, gets a letter and they're heartbreaking. Professor Ernov, I saw you work on CRISPR and literally the, the next word in the email make me choke up. Will you save my dying angel? And I can't even say that without starting to choke up. And Eric, the, the unfortunate truth is that even in those settings where we have solved the technical problem, 
of how to use CRISPR to help that individual. Um, the practical truth is the biotechnology companies in this sector, of which there is a good number, by the practical realities of the way the world works, can only focus on a tiny fraction of them. You know, you mentioned 7,000 diseases and the hundreds of millions of people affected with them. All in, the, these biotech companies maybe work on 20 or 30 of those. What about the rest? And what's happening with the rest is um, there is no way for us to develop a CRISPR medicine for a person who has a rare disease for the simple reason that those diseases are too rare to be commercially viable. What biotechnology company will invest millions of dollars and years of time and resources to build a CRISPR medicine for uh, one child? Now, your audience probably heard of Timothy Yu at Children's Boston, and they built uh, a different class of genetic medicines for one dying child. Her name is Mila. She died, but her symptoms got slightly better before she passed away. And that was like a two-year effort, which costs, I don't know, many millions of dollars. Um, the reason we're not CRISPRing more people in many cases is our current way of building these medicines and testing them for safety and efficacy is outdated. So we have to be respectful of the fact that the for-profit sector, by the definition of its name, is for-profit. We cannot blame a, a biotechnology company for having a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders to return on investment. What does that do to diseases which are not profitable? Well, again, you and I, uh, you were an academia and still are when you collaborated with a biotech to do gene editing for heart disease. And I think that's exactly the model. I think the academic and the non-for-profit sector has to really step up to the lab bench here to start developing accelerated ways to build cures for devastatingly ill human beings for whom, let's just face it, we're not going to get a commercial medicine anytime soon. And I don't want to be Pollyannish. I think this will take time. Um, and I think this will take a fundamentally new way in which um, we both manufacture these medicines, we put them through regulatory review by the FDA, and frankly, administer them. Who exactly is supposed to pay for a CRISPR medicine for one child? Um, we don't know that. But the key point of my piece is that CRISPR is here now. So all of these conversations about, oh, you know, when we have technology to cure disease, then let's talk about how to do that. I think are wrong. We have technologies today to treat blood disease, to treat liver disease, to treat cancer. We're just not in many cases because our, our system to pay for developing these medicines and treating patients predates CRISPR. We have a BC before CRISPR system <laughs> right. for doing all of those things in the age of CRISPR. So frankly, you know, staying with the transportation metaphor, we have pretty amazing cars. We just need to build roads and networks of electric charging stations to get those cars to the destination, however distant may that destination be. Well, I think this is really an important point to uh, emphasize because the ones that are going to get to commercial success, if we use gene therapy as a kind of prototype, 
which, which we'll talk about a bit in a moment, but they are, you know, a few million dollars for the treatment, four, three million, four million dollars, which is, of course, unprecedented. And they come up with these cost effective analyses that if you had to take whatever for your whole life and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, so what? The point here is that we can't afford them. And of course, um, the idea here is that over time, this network, as you say, with all the charging stations, use it continuing on that metaphor, it needs to get to much lower costs, much lower threshold, the confidence of safety that you measure, but also, you know, to get to scale. So it can reach those other thousands of conditions that it doesn't, is not at the moment even on the radar screen. So I hope that that will occur. I hope your effort to, to prod that, to, to stimulate that work throughout academic labs and, you know, nonprofit um, organizations will be successful because otherwise we've got, we're all dressed up with little places to go. You know, we're, we're kind of in a place where it's exciting. It's like science fiction. We have cures for diseases that we didn't have treatments before. We have cures, right? But we don't have the means to pay for them or to make this technology, which is so extraordinary, the biggest life science breakthrough advance perhaps in history, but one that could reach, you know, very low glass ceiling uh, because of these issues that you that you have centered on. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, you know, grateful for you having, having gotten that out there. Um, and I just, forgive me for stepping in for just one sentence to showcase a remarkable physician at UCSF, Dr. Jennifer Puck, who for 30 plus years has been working with the Navajo Nation to treat devastating, um, a devastating disorder of the immune system, uh, which uh, for tragic historical reasons disproportionately affects that community. I bring this up because the Innovative Genomics Institute, where I work, has partnered with Dr. Puck to develop a CRISPR treatment for Navajo children because we really, and I really love the way you framed it, you know, we don't have to, today, in a nonprofit setting, build a cure for everyone. We need to build an example. How do you approach a disease for which the unmet need is enormous? And how do you prove to the world that a group of academic physician scientists and nonprofit institution can come together to realistically address um, and, and, and giant and met, met, as formidable and met medical need in a community that has been historically uh, marginalized in the hope that the solution we have provided can be a blueprint to sort of replicate for other conditions, both in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Uh, essential. Now, um, how do you deal with the, the blurring, if you will, of gene therapies versus genome editing. That is, you know, you could say genome editing is, is gene therapy, but there are some important differences. How, how do you conceptualize that? So um, you're going to uh, perhaps uh, slightly wince because I'm going to provide another automotive metaphor. And I'm really sorry, I should be more serious. Well, the standard way I explain this to my students is, imagine you have a, a car with a flat tire. So uh, gene therapy is taking out the spare from the trunk and sticking it somewhere else on the car. So now the car has a fifth wheel and hoping it runs. And believe it or not, that actually works. Gene editing is repairing the flat. That's good. Having said that, 
we as gene editors stand on the shoulders of 30 plus years of gene, gene therapies, starting actually in the United States at the National Cancer Institute. And of course, which are now there are multiple approved medicines, both for cancer and genetic diseases. And I really want to honor and salute not just the pioneers of this field, but the entire community of gene therapies who continue to push things forward. But I will admit I am biased. Um, gene editing is a way to fix mutations where, right where they occur. And when, if you do them right, gene editing does not involve the manufacture of expensive viruses. Now, to be clear, I really hope that gene therapies are a mainstay of medical care for the next century. But, uh, and we're certainly learning an enormous amount, but I really see the next decade, frankly, I hope, I hope I'm right, as sort of the age of CRISPR in genetics. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think that the age of CRISPR is upon us. Now, speaking of CRISPR, and you mentioned Jennifer Doudna, you get to work with her uh, at, at Berkeley and the, the Innovative Genomics Institute. What's it like to work with uh, Jennifer? I wish that I could tell you that, you know, Jennifer flies into the room on a hovercraft, <laughs> radiating it. <laughs> Jennifer Doudna, every time, comes across as who she is, which is a scientist who has spent her entire life thinking very deeply about a specific set of biological problems. She's an incredibly thoughtful, methodical, substantive, deep scientist. That's, and that comes through in 100% of our, my interactions with her and everybody else's. Her other feature is humility. I have not, in the six years I've worked with her, not once have I seen her pull rank on anyone in any sense. You know, I could imagine somebody with 10% of her track record, you know, she gave the world CRISPR. Look up in PubMed. There's, I don't know how many references about CRISPR. She started an entire realm of biology and biomedicine. Not once have I said, seen her say to people, can I just point out that I'm Jennifer Doudna and you're not? <laughs> but the first thing I really admire about her is, you know, Jane Austen wonderfully and satirically writes about one of her characters. He then retired to his estate where he could think with pleasure of his own importance. Jennifer Doudna is the inverse of that. She could retire and think with pleasure about her own impact. She's the inverse. She is here and on point 24-7. I get emails from her at all sorts of times of day and text messages. She sits in the front row of her lab meeting and she has a big lab, pressure tests everyone as if she were a junior faculty, not yet gotten tenure. But most importantly, I think her heart is in the right place. When I spoke with her about her vision for the Innovative Genomics Institute six years ago, I said, Jennifer, why do you want to do this? She said, I want to bring CRISPR to the world. I want a CRISPR to be the standard of medical care. And this good, fundamentally good heart that she has, she genuinely cares as a human being for the fact that uh, CRISPR uh, becomes a tool for the, a force for the good. And I think that the reason we've all sort of, we, we are all frankly foot soldiers uh, in a healthy way in that army is we are led by a human being, uh, you know, I jokingly, but with a modicum of seriousness, think of Jennifer as, you know, if you think about the Statue of Liberty holding a torch, 
if, if Jennifer were doing that, she would be holding a pipette, uh, <laughs> leading, us all, leading us all forward uh, to CRISPR making an impact. Um, people also ask me, how has Jennifer changed since she won the Nobel Prize? My answer is, she won the Nobel Prize? <laughs> she hasn't. And not the thing, I mean, her schedule got worse. But like, I cannot give you a single meaningful example of where Jennifer has changed. And again, that speaks volumes to the human being that she is. Well, you know, that came across really well in uh, Walter Isaacson's book, The Codebreaker, mm -hmm. where you, of course, were part of that, too, about, you know, really the, the, how, how genuine she is and, and the humility that you touched on. But I also want to bring up the humility in Fyodor Ernov, because you were there at the very beginning with these zinc fingers, you know, you were putting them into cells and showing how they achieved genome editing. There was no CRISPR. There was no Cas9. You were onto this at a very early point. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're talking, you're, you describe yourself just now as a foot soldier, anything but that, you know, I, I, I see you as, you know, a veritable pioneer in this field. And, there's another thing about you that I think is very special, and that is your ability to communicate this complex area and get it where everyone can understand it, which is all the more important as it gets rolled out to become a realistic alternative to these conditions that we've been talking about. So for that and so many things, uh, you know, I'm indebted to you. So, Theodore, what have I missed? I, I, we can't cover everything. Uh, there, you could write encyclopedias about this, and it's changing every week. But have I missed anything that's important in the field of genome editing that that uh, you should close on? Well, so as far as your gracious words, um, now that I'm no longer blushing like a t like a ripe tomato, uh, <laughs> I do want to honor uh, the enormous group of people, uh, my colleagues at Sangamo and in the academic community for for building genome editing 1.0, and you. Um, uh, among a very select few uh, leaders in biomedicine who saw early the promise of gene editing. Again, I, I showcase our collaboration uh, as an example of what true you know, vis vision in, in biomedicine can do. You know, I think I would imagine that your audience might say, um, what about CRISPR for enhancement? Um, well, I personally don't see anything wrong with well-informed adult human beings agreeing to being gene edited to enhance some feature of themselves um, once we know that it is safe and effective. Um, but we are years, maybe a decade away from that. So um, if any of those listening receive a, an email from crispermebeautiful.com <laughs> offering a, 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 a gene editing enhancement service, report that email as vile spam. Right. Uh, CRISPR is amazing. It, it's affecting agriculture, medicine in so many different ways and fundamental research. It's making an astonishing progress in the clinic. Medically speaking, today it is exactly where it needs to be, as an experimental treatment for severe disorders. 
all of us have a dream where you know you you can be crisp you can sort of tune your genes if you will <laughs> um i don't know if i will live to see that but for now all of us have one prize in mind which is make crispr available as a safe and effective medicine for severe existing disease and um we are working hard towards that and i think our we have a legitimate foundation for good hope yeah i think that's um putting it very solid it's it's probably now with the experience to date not just uh in those hundreds of patients and in clinical trials it continues to look extra extraordinary um that that it is going to fulfill the great promise um and as you said it's not just in medicine many other walks of life are benefiting from this and i a lot of people don't realize that you know when you do a xenotransplant and you keep mm. who otherwise would die but you give them a a pig heart and you edit 50 60 different genes in critical places so that the, that it that it appears to the body as a, a human heart transplant uh, one that you know can't be rejected theoretically you open up areas like that that are just so uh, exceptional but to to um also highlight uh that we're not talking we're talking about somatic genome editing already genes that are sick or need to be adjusted if you will not the ones and embryos that change the human race no we're not going there and no, no. Uh, the the off target affects the safety you know we'll learn more and more about this in the, in the times ahead in the short times ahead with all the more people that are getting um the first lines of of treatment so fedor thank you so much uh thank you for your friendship over this extended period of time Um you've taught me so much over the years and uh I'm so glad we have a chance to regroup here to kind of assess the field as it stands today uh and how it's going to be keep evolving at a at a high velocity. Um my goodness Eric it's been an, an amazing amazing honor and I should also say and this is the truth my morning ritual consists of two things a shot of espresso and seeing if you've posted anything interesting on twitter that is how i wake up my brain to take on the day so thank you for not just the, your amazing vision and uh extraordinary efforts as as a scientist and a physician scientist but also thank you for the remarkable work you do in making critical advances in medicine and framing them in their exact right way um for an a very large audience and I'm humbled and honored by your invitation to speak with you today in this setting um I let's just say that the moment this comes out I'm going to tell my mom mom yes what oh my god uh, well, I have I have been I I've spoken with Eric Topple she will be very excited <laughs> well you're much too kind and uh we'll leave it there and reconvene uh in the future for a update because uh, it won't be long before there'll be some substantial ones Peter thank you so much Truly truly a pleasure thank you